I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Dementia Matters. This is your host, Nathaniel Chin. I don't have a guest with me today, as this is a special episode where I plan to talk about the evaluation process for lecanemab. Before I begin, I'd like to cover some disclosures. One, I work in an academic memory clinic, and I recognize that the resources I have and the experience I have is not the same as those in other clinic environments. And so the suggestions I have are based on my experience in a memory program. Things will be different for other institutions as well as other providers. Two, I'm not receiving any funding for doing this podcast. I do not have a sponsorship from any of the pharmaceutical industries. I'm doing this for other reasons, which I will mention in a minute. Number three, I've not actually signed a prescription for lecanemab. I have done evaluations for the workup and leading to the infusion of lecanemab, but I myself have not been a part of that. And I give that as an important disclosure since I'm not trying to favor one thing over the other. And lastly, number four, the views you hear today reflect that of myself and myself alone. I do not speak on behalf of the great institution of University of Wisconsin-Madison, University of Wisconsin Hospitals and Clinics, the School of Medicine and Public Health, Department of Medicine, or even my other geriatric colleagues. These are my views alone. So the purpose of this podcast is not an endorsement of lecanemab. It is meant to provide information for discussions on lecanemab, for the eventual evaluation to be on this medication. I'm hoping that for the clinicians listening, that this will help and aid them in talking to their patients about things that they should consider, both as the clinician, the healthcare institution, and the patient family. For people in the community who are listening, I'm hoping that this might stimulate discussion on what you are thinking about if you are considering pursuing this medication, or if you have a diagnosis of two of the conditions I mentioned in the next few minutes. Lastly, I will only be talking about the evaluation process. I'm not going to speak to the evidence in the clinical trials, the benefits, the risks, the lack of benefits, this idea of time saving. I'm also not going to speak to the infusion process or the monitoring process. I'm only going to be talking about what it takes to actually be evaluated for and potentially eventually receive the medication. So before we begin, I want to give a brief outline, since this is a slightly longer episode than what you're used to hearing. First, I'm going to present three separate sections. After each section, I'm going to give you my impression of what I report. The three sections are going to be the prescribing information from the pharmaceutical company, the appropriate use guidelines from Dr. Cummings et al., and then the additional appropriate use guidelines or criteria from the VA healthcare system. I'm going to end with some general thoughts, and then I'd like to propose a potential workflow for those individuals who are considering instituting and evaluating people for the Canamab or for patients so that they can simply know what healthcare providers are thinking about and what the visit process may look like. I recognize that this is a very charged issue. People have many opinions about this. Please feel free to provide feedback on this episode. You can base it on your own experience as a provider, your own experience as a patient, but I ask you to be civil and respectful. The people reading these emails are part of the Dementia Matters podcasting team. They're not me directly, so I would ask you to be kind 
in providing your, your experience and feedback. Lastly, the show notes are going to include the prescriber information, the appropriate use guideline article, and the VA guideline. Everything I'm speaking to is publicly available and found online. So to begin, the lecanemab prescribing information comes from the pharmaceutical company. It is a 22-page document, but the first page is really the highlight section, and that's what I want to speak to. The indication for lecanemab is treatment for mild cognitive impairment and mild stage dementia, which happen to be the two populations of people who were studied in the clinical trials. Under the section of dosage and administration, you really have to confirm the presence of amyloid beta pathology. You have to test for APOE, and that should be done prior to initiation of treatment. There is an MRI that needs to be done of your brain before initiating therapy and as well as during the monitoring protocol, and that's before the 5th, 7th, and 14th infusion, so it's three more MRI scans. The only contraindication listed is anyone with a hypersensitivity to the drug, specifically those who develop angioedema and or anaphylaxis. So for those that are wondering what is anaphylaxis, for individuals who've had a bee sting and develop swelling of their face and throat or have an, a very severe allergy to peanuts, that would be something uh, that might be more familiar to you. There's also a boxed warning for aria as a side effect, so amyloid-related imaging abnormality, just indicating the seriousness of that side effect, as well as a warning and precaution for infusion-related reactions. So these would be symptoms you develop while you're at the infusion center receiving the medication. So my impression on this section will hopefully be brief. It's really meant to highlight that this is a treatment, not a prevention. So people who do not have mild cognitive impairment or any form of cognitive impairment are not indicated for this. There is a prevention study called the AHEAD study, which people can look at if they are interested in pursuing that type of clinical trial. The people who are potentially eligible for this medication are those with mild cognitive impairment and mild stage dementia. So you need a diagnosis first. You need to know your syndrome, that is MCI or mild stage dementia. Uh, it is not meant, unfortunately, for people with moderate stage dementia or more advanced progression of their dementia, severe stage dementia. And I think that's an important part. And so if people have the assumption that this is going to be for anyone with Alzheimer's disease or anyone with dementia, that is not true. The mild stage of dementia was studied in the clinical trial, and there's many who believe that after a certain point of progression, the benefit is not worth the risk. We need to know if someone has amyloid in the brain, which is why you see that as one of the required criteria. This medication works by removing amyloid from the brain, so if you don't have amyloid, it serves no purpose, and you're just subjecting yourself to, to risk. Similarly, though, another requirement from this prescribing information is that people should know and learn their APOE status. That is a genetic disclosure or learning of genetic information. It is not meant for the diagnosis itself. It is actually meant for risk stratification. People who carry the risk for developing Alzheimer's disease, known as APOE4, if you carry 4-4, meaning one copy from mom, one copy from dad, you're at a high risk of developing bleeding, ARIA-H, or swelling, ARIA-E, and many institutions will not prescribe lecanemab to those individuals. So it is a way of monitoring safety or assessing safety prior to the medication. People with APOE4 and then a non-4, meaning a 3 or a 2 as their other copy, are eligible still, potentially, for receiving this medication, but they still remain at higher risk than what we would call those with APOE3-3 or 3-2 or 2-2.
It's important to note that the MRI needs to be done before the infusion, and then there is at least three more times that you're going to have an MRI brain scan. So there is a time commitment to this. You're going to have more MRI scans if you do have side effects. That is the, the only way to assess for ARIA. And certainly there's going to still be concern for people having uh, strokes or other uh, neurological side effects. The only contraindication listed here is anaphylaxis. This is not going to be the case as we move forward to talk about the next two sections, but at least there's only one listed here and most providers are going to have many more to consider. Lastly, ARIA is still the most concerning side effect, but there are actually more common side effects as well as many other side effects. The infusion reaction happens to be the most common, though it is manageable. All right, moving on to the next section, I'd like to talk about the recommendations from the appropriate use guideline recommendations from Dr. Cummings et al. These recommendations are based on the Clarity AD trial. So the first thing and the most important to start with is that the, this medication is only for those with a clinical diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment or MCI or mild stage dementia. And they are using cutoffs from the mini mental state exam 22 to 30, or the MOCA, which is the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Test of 17 to 30. I'm going to pause here and offer my opinion, which is that ideally we would use more thorough cognitive testing than the MMSE or the MOCA. These are our good tests for screening, meaning they are used in primary care clinic and specialty clinics to support a concern that someone might be having memory or thinking changes. But we don't tend to use these for diagnostic purposes, meaning we're not telling someone confidently that they have MCI or dementia based on these tests. I'm sure this is happening at some places and is probably reasonable given the resources available. But ideally and preferably, we would have more thorough cognitive testing to really determine if someone has a cognitive impairment, uh, which is one of the needed criteria for MCI or dementia. Preferably, we'd also have cognitive testing done within six months of the infusion. And I say that because people will progress if they have a disease like Alzheimer's disease causing their cognitive change. It could be Lewy body disease or Parkinson's disease or vascular disease that may cause further progressive changes. In either scenario, over time, people decline. And so if you've had a more recent test within six months, that would at least tell you where you are prior to the initiation of therapy and that the therapy is still meaningful to you and, and technically still indicated. Cognitive testing really needs to be done by someone trained to do cognitive testing. This is a big point that I, I've made in the past. This is a very unique skill set, and to be able to administer a cognitive test requires training, understanding of the test, following the protocol that was used in creating the test, and doing it in a standardized way. If people who have not ever or rarely use cognitive screening tests are the ones doing it, the reliability is not the same. In addition to cognitive testing, I would say it's really important to have a functional assessment. And the reason for that is not only so that we can stage a person's change in this, in this scheme, but also to rule out the moderate stage of dementia or more advanced dementia. This is really important. It can be done using validated questionnaires. I'd certainly recommend doing more of a semi-structured interview where you use the questionnaire to generate conversation and discussion with the patient and the person who comes with them, hopefully a reliable informant like a family member or close friend. You will hear me mentioned a validated questionnaire called the FAQ, the Functional Assessment Questionnaire, or a staging system called FAST, 
a functional assessment staging tool. These are clinically used to help assess a person's function, but ultimately it is a conversation. And I think the most important part is really making sure if a person maintains their basic activities of daily living. The next step in the appropriate use guidelines is to evaluate for exclusionary conditions. And I'm gonna list many of the exclusionary conditions that were put in the document. There are others, but I'm gonna highlight about 10 or more. These are, again, if you have one of these, you would be excluded or not eligible to receive a canamab. Under the age of 50 or over the age of 90, having had a stroke or a mini stroke called a TIA in the past 12 months, having a bleeding disorder, having had a seizure in the past 12 months, having a depression screening score on a GDS, geriatric depression screening, greater than eight, having a BMI greater than 35 or less than 17, having cerebral amyloid angiopathy, having any neurologic, medical, or psychiatric condition that may be contributing to the cognitive impairment, or in other words, a non-AD-related MCI or dementia, any unstable medical condition, being able to have an MRI scan, and being willing and able to go to an infusion center every other week. So that's a lot of information, and I'm going to comment on some of it here. I'll start by saying I would not have an age cutoff, uh, particularly an upper age cutoff. Of course, I'm a geriatrician, and so we do know that in science and in research, there has been an exclusion of older adults. The cutoff that they've put, you know, be people less than 50 over 90, is based on the clinical trial, so that was reasonable to at least mention. But I think in the real world, we have to be more inclusive. And so certainly I would eliminate an, a cutoff of age, but I would still say it's important to assess for frailty and function in older adults. And so that, that would be a part of the functional assessment, but just even well-being assessment, what a person is capable of doing. It makes sense to exclude someone based on a recent history of stroke, TAA, or just having a bleeding disorder. Given our concern for ARIA-H hemorrhage, I do wonder what uh, providers are going to do about stable bleeding conditions or stable bleeding disorders. A condition called ITP comes to mind and whether or not a person who is stable on this with platelets that are high enough would be still considered. It makes sense that the, the, the appropriate use guidelines would provide guidance for a platelet count of less than 50,000 or an INR blood test greater than 1.5. This is, again, this makes sense because of the bleeding concern. I just wonder what we will do if the bleeding condition is, has improved or stable. Excluding someone based on a history of seizures, again, is based on the clinical trials and what they did. Again, in the real world, what will we do about remote seizures? People who had a febrile seizure as a child or a one-time seizure years ago that they do not require medication for. Certainly, these, these are going to be case-by-case -case situations, but worthy of discussion within the clinical world. The GDS, or the geriatric depression screening greater than eight, is tricky. I worry about having a number to decide this, but I certainly agree that we want to uh, assess and address a patient's mental health. That's true just for the idea of well-being and treatment, for the evaluation of thinking changes, but also in the context of potentially receiving lecanemab. You know, a mental illness can interfere and cause symptoms. It certainly can affect their ability to adhere to treatment recommendations, but it's also just about their well-being and their overall quality of life. And there's something we can do to help them before doing a therapy such as lecanemab. It certainly makes sense. The BMI cutoffs, I believe, were done due to 
the being able to fit into an MRI scanner, people carry weight differently. And so for those with higher BMIs, I think it's reasonable to make sure if, if they can fit into an MRI scanner that they still be allowed. The cerebral amyloid angiopathy, again, that speaks to this idea of aria H or hemorrhage. And so certainly that would be an exclusion. I would recommend we have objective evidence of cerebral amyloid angiopathy, not just take verbal report. Not listed in the bullet points that I mentioned before uh, is a history of an immunological condition such as lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, or Crohn's, or being uh, having one of those conditions and being on a monoclonal or systemic immunosuppressive, things like steroids. And again, I, I understand this is a part of the criteria, but in the real world, we'll see plenty of healthy people with these conditions or on these medications. And so for the provider and the institution, is this going to be case by case? How do we wish to approach people who are on stable dosing? I don't have answers. I'm, I'm simply asking the question. When it comes to unstable medical conditions, again, this is a clinical decision. It certainly makes sense, and it would be a reason to not start or proceed with lecanemab, but there are likely conditions that can be improved on or addressed, stabilized and treated, and then a person can be reevaluated. And I'm thinking of something like sleep apnea, active depression, or anxiety. If there are outright exclusions like fulminant liver failure or permanent end-stage renal disease, that would make sense. But if they're not permanent, then certainly this idea of reassessment in the future would allow for more access and inclusion for patients. Number three in the appropriate use guidelines that I've delineated is going to be evaluating medications. And they're really just two things in particular. Uh, they list exclusions as being on, a, on another monoclonal antibody therapy for Alzheimer's. So that would be aducanumab, the only other that was FDA approved, and being on anticoagulants. In the appropriate use guidelines, they say that antiplatelets are okay. And again, this makes sense given our concern for ARIA-H. I do wonder what other providers are going to do when it comes to those antiplatelets. Is aspirin 81 milligrams okay, but 325 milligrams is not okay? What if you're on both aspirin and Plavix? So there are nuances to this which haven't been worked out. And certainly this is going to be a, an important conversation. So if you're a community member and you happen to be on one or both of these, doesn't necessarily mean you're outright excluded, but certainly Certainly you want to talk about the risk benefit or the different options in adjusting these medications should you want to, to go forward with lecanemab. Number four, things that are required of you to be included in the eligibility for therapy, having a care partner or family member willing to go to the infusion center and having capacity for informed consent. Again, I created these sort of sets, these categories within the appropriate use guidelines, but it all makes sense to, that you'd want to make sure the patient has the support that they have access or the ability to go to the infusion center. But it does feel like it, in and of itself, it is reducing access to individuals, particularly those who, who live alone or don't have a care partner or family member. So I certainly think that this is going to be a conversation within each healthcare institution and clinic. The infusion centers may not end up being the place where most of these therapies occur. Uh, certainly the more recent Clinical Trials and Alzheimer's Disease Conference and other conferences are showing the potential for subcutaneous injections and therefore uh, having therapy administered at home or at least outside of an infusion center. So while it makes sense now that you have to go to an infusion center, I don't anticipate that's going to be the ultimate location. Number five in the appropriate use guidelines is obtaining a, a non-contrast MRI scan within 12 months. Within this category, there are a lot of exclusionary criteria that can be found within that MRI scan. I'm going to list off the ones that I was able to put together from the appropriate use guidelines. There are more than a handful, so bear with me. 
having had a history of stroke involving a major vascular territory at any remote time, three or more lacunar infarcts, which are small lesions found on an MRI scan, severe subcortical hyperintensity, so severe stage of this white matter hyperintensities, five or more microhemorrhages, which are defined as less than 11 millimeters in size, a single macrohemorrhage, which is defined as 11 or more millimeters in size, the presence of superficial siderosis, evidence of vasogenic edema, evidence of amyloid beta-related angiitis, known as ABRA, cerebral amyloid angiopathy, and then any major intracranial finding that may cause cognitive impairment. So that's a lot, and I'm not a radiologist, and so I don't have a lot to comment on other than it would be preferable to have an MRI scan closer to the time of receiving the lecanemab in case something were to change over time. And certainly the lacunar infarcts or white matter hyperintensities or even bleeding could happen. And so while 12 months makes sense, I think clinically, I would like to see an MRI within three to six months. I would also say, and I'll comment on this later, having a radiologist actually address each and every one of these exclusionary criteria seems important. And so having the, the report that is provided actually commenting on each of these categories so that we would know that we're appropriately screening individuals. Steps six and seven in the appropriate use guidelines are evaluating for amyloid positivity and evaluating for APOE status. I combine those two because both of these make sense. This was a part of the prescribing information as well. And of course, you need to know if a person has amyloid in order to have the therapy be at all potentially beneficial. And the APOE is for risk stratification and not for the diagnosis itself. I'm going to talk more about this at the end, so I'm just going to move on. So section three is really the additional or adjustments that were made based on our VA healthcare system. And I'll list these out as well and just provide a brief comment afterwards. First is that an exclusion would be being uh, younger than the age of 65. So they're really looking to use this medication only in 65 and older. You would be excluded if you had both copies of APOE4. So one copy from mom, one copy from dad, that was APOE4. Having a thyroid stimulating hormone lab known as a TSH that is greater than 7.5, indicating that you have active hypothyroidism. Having a low vitamin B12 count, or that's a blood test. Having cancer and being on treatment, active treatment for it. Having answered yes to the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale, which would indicate a certain type of suicidal ideation, or having any suicidal behavior within the past six months. Being hospitalized or treated for suicidal behavior in the past five years. Current active substance use disorder or having a positive urine drug screen. The prescriber of lecanemab must be a board-certified neurologist, geriatric psychiatrist, or geriatrician who specializes in the treatment of dementia. And then lastly, a functional assessment staging test. So that's the FAST scale that I mentioned before, a stage score of two to four, which would indicate criteria for MCI or mild Alzheimer's disease dementia. So it makes perfect sense to me that we would want to optimize a person's or a patient's chronic medical conditions first before using lecanemab. And that's why it's listed above or it's listed here, uh, making sure a person's thyroid B12 are appropriate, making sure you're treating cancer first. But this, this line of thinking makes sense. It is very similar to oncology in that we want a person to be as healthy as possible before they initiate this therapy. And oncologists do this as well 
uh, functionally before starting chemo. Mood and suicidal ideation really do need to be addressed prior to treatment, but it's not just about compliance and adherence to therapy. It is about emotional readiness to begin therapy. It's about evaluating and ruling out alternative causes to a thinking change, or if it's a contributing factor, doing our best to optimize that so and help people throughout this whole process. Substance use and making sure someone's not actively using drugs, again, seems appropriate and it makes sense. I do wonder what uh, other providers and institutions are going to do about supplement use. Some supplements may lead to increased risk of bleeding uh, and others may have other side effects that could affect a person. And so will providers stop those or require that they be stopped or are they going to allow that? And I don't have the answer for that, but I do wonder uh, what others will be doing. I do think there is a larger issue being brought up by the VA, which is who the prescribers are. So certainly specialists seem to make the most sense. This is a very serious medication and it, and it requires a lot of diagnosis and, and consultation. Uh, so while they have the expertise, there's really not enough specialists to do this. And so will this fall to generalists and primary care providers? And if so, are those individuals and those groups of providers ready and, and wanting to do this? And lastly, a staging scheme. Again, I, I completely agree. It's important not only for a patient and family to understand where the patient is in the whole spectrum of thinking and daily functional change, but now it's also important for treatment. So just a few remaining thoughts about all three of those criteria. One thing that wasn't mentioned is that, and I believe the appropriate use talks about this, it's okay for a person to be on other medications for dementia, and that's cholinesterase inhibitors or the NMDA blocker called uh, memantine. These are medications that are going to be commonly used in a memory clinic or for those with memory changes. Those are not exclusionary. Certainly, again, memantine's indicated for moderate stage of dementia, and so if you're on that, it should be for other reasons besides the fact that you would have a more advanced stage of dementia. Something that does come up in the appropriate use guidelines is this idea of multi-etiology. And so the actual comment in the appropriate use guidelines is any neurologic, medical, or psychiatric condition that may be contributing to the cognitive impairment. And what we're finding is that in an older population, as people get older, mixed disease, meaning multiple causes to cognitive impairment, are, is actually more common. In this clinical trial, it was more of a quote, pure sample, meaning those who truly just had most likely Alzheimer's disease, but did not have vascular disease or Lewy body disease or frontal temporal disease or Parkinson's disease. And I think there's a risk then to translate that to the memory clinic or certainly to primary care clinics where we're going to see more mixed diseases. Again, we're going to have to allow for some space or protocols or strategies where if there is a suspected mixed cause, Alzheimer's and Lewy body, Alzheimer's and vascular, that we would consider them for therapy of any kind, but also then have more information or at least a conversation about what that might do or how that might impact their projected course being on the therapy, given that the clinical trials do not have this more heterogeneous population. I think it's really important for us to consider as a field allowing research-based PET scans, spinal fluid analysis, blood-based biomarkers to be used in the confirmation of the presence of amyloid in particular. So a research amyloid PET scan, while it may not be FDA approved, certainly has been shown from the work of the past decades and great scientists to be a valid test. This is what we have been using in the research population. It would save a person the burden of having to go for another scan. It would also save healthcare economically to have why repeat it if we have a valid scan from a research institution, which had to have protocols and quality improvement, quality assurance testing anyways. Same thing would be true for spinal fluid. I think a separate issue is that right now, 
there's not approval to use blood-based biomarkers as confirmation of amyloid. And I think the results in the studies that are coming out really do show that certain ones have met what we would consider the standard of being a valid test. They are comparing them to PET scans in particular, but again, this improves access, this improves our reach so that we can get to patients in the rural parts of, of the country, as well as urban parts, as well as communities of color that have not historically been able to have PET scans and spinal fluid tests. So blood-based biomarkers, I think, it makes sense to have the right blood-based biomarker used to confirm the presence of amyloid. When it comes to APOE testing, I would not allow for direct-to-consumer testing. I would want it to be a clinical test. Some of the blood-based biomarkers include APOE. I think that would be fine. I think APOE testing from a research program would also be acceptable and should be included as an acceptable way of determining an APOE status. And, and certainly all healthcare institutions that are going to have lecanemab or any MAB therapy uh, we'll have to have a way of testing for this, given that most, if not everyone, agrees that we should know this result before determining final eligibility. Lastly, I think it's really important that we understand how people are doing on these therapies. That includes care partners, families. It really is going to be the experience in clinic that will determine the future use and implementation of these therapies. Also, whether or not repeat scans are going to be needed and required, as well as collecting data along, along the way. And so that might be repeat blood-based biomarker tests or PET scans, certainly surveys, and then the registries. And I think these this is going to be an important part. Many people in Alzheimer's disease research are used to this, but not everyone is. And certainly people not involved in research are going to be receiving this therapy. And so bringing this up and having that be a part of the conversation and culture of care seems important and warranted. Lastly, some other things to consider just from a system-wide infrastructure. We really do need to work very closely with radiology to make sure the exclusionary criteria have been evaluated when getting MRI scans for these therapies, particularly lecanemab, having a template perhaps so that it's easier to determine that this has happened, working very closely with the emergency department and neurologists. Anytime a person has a side effect and they've been on this medication, there will be calls or there will be people going to the emergency department and making sure people are informed Providers are informed of the therapy that they're on, the, the process of evaluating for stroke still, what to do if a person is having a stroke. If you're on lecanemab, you, you are unlikely then to receive what's called TPA or medication that thins your blood. But what about if you've had a heart attack then? And so not being on a, a, an anticoagulant in that regard. So these things really need to be worked out with the specialists and certainly brought up to the patient before they agree to the, the medication. We're going to need more education and training for all levels of healthcare, including our medical assistants and nurses and physician assistants, nurse practitioners. There's a there's a great need to to understand not only Alzheimer's disease, cognitive diseases, but then this process of evaluating people for this type of new therapy. And so there are ways that we can collect medical history and medications that is not going to be as time intensive for providers as well as redundant for patients and families. We need more materials, more educational materials for patients and providers on the drugs themselves, on a workflow, the side effects, the monitoring, and all of that. We, we need those in clinic, ideally before the whole system is up and the infusion beds are full of people receiving therapy. Certainly, we need training in how to share amyloid and APOE results. 
how to prepare people, patients and families for this, and what are the implications are of, of learning both. If primary care providers are going to be prescribing uh, monoclonal therapies, they would need and want hopefully more training and support. If they're going to be making referrals to memory clinics or specialists, knowing what they should be doing before making that referral will make the process easier and reduce the bottleneck at the specialist level. So with the last section here, I just want to propose a workflow for how providers may approach this evaluation process based on all of the criteria I've just mentioned. The first is that you need a syndromic evaluation. You need a syndromic diagnosis in the right stage, meaning you need to diagnose mild cognitive impairment or dementia. And then if it's dementia, mild stage versus an exclusionary moderate or severe stage. So that's going to require a very intentional cognitive or just an intentional history from both the patient and the person that comes with them. We call that an informant or a study partner or family member. In addition to that, you're going to want to have cognitive testing, and I've already argued for more thorough testing. For some, it's going to be a mini mental or an MMSE or a MOCA. In addition to that, you're looking at basic blood work, complete metabolic profile or complete metabolic panel, a CBC, an INR, a thyroid, a B12. You can do this within 12 months, but certainly the, the closer you are to the infusion date, the better. There are probably other tests that people and providers may want to get, and I think more information is going to be better in that regard. You're going to want to evaluate for the exclusionary conditions after you've gotten this syndromic diagnosis. This is going to be important for this trying to understand the etiology anyways, uh, but using checklists. So having a checklist for a patient and family to fill out, having a checklist for a medical assistant or clinician to fill out. You can do this also for step three, which is evaluating for the exclusionary medications. So same thing, checklist for family, patient, checklist for the healthcare provider. Number four in this process is getting that MRI scan. Again, there's a timing to this, but making sure they don't have one of the criteria that would exclude them. Number five would then be preparing a person for learning their amyloid testing and APOE testing. And I would just prepare them uh, together, both of those results, but I would actually only get the amyloid test first. If the amyloid is negative, not present, then they don't need to get an APOE test. And there are implications for APOE beyond just learning the result, whether it's on family or insurance or, discrimi or potential discrimination at uh, work or, or even just your own self-stigma of it. If amyloid is negative, you wouldn't get APOE testing. But if it is positive, then proceeding with APOE testing and then being able to talk about what that means and all those other implications. And then lastly, meeting with the provider who's going to write the prescription for the infusion, so having true informed consent, and then having that order in that visit or maybe at subsequent visits, then being prepared and truly understanding what it means to go through with the 18 months of therapy, or if it's not 18 months, why, and then all the monitoring that goes with it. So I would argue that you know you have to start with the syndromic evaluation, the diagnosis of MCI or mild stage dementia. That's step one, and that includes a lot of the evaluation process, and then evaluating for exclusionary conditions, exclusionary medications, and an MRI. Those four things can all be done in one visit or at least two visits, and that would then include discussing amyloid testing and APOE. Then you have your amyloid testing and discussion, APOE testing discussion. That would either be one visit, two visits, certainly a phone call, and then lastly, the visit for consent and to be prescribed the medication. So I recognize that this is a very long episode. I appreciate you listening and I do welcome your feedback. And again, we're all trying to provide the best care for our patients. And I would like to remind us of that. We can disagree on how we think that is best achieved. But with this approval of the Canamab, I did want to put out a potential process as well as just things to think about when having the conversation. Thanks for listening. 
Thank you for listening to Dementia Matters. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Or tell your smart speaker to play the Dementia Matters podcast. Please rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes on Aging for Alzheimer's Disease Research Centers. This episode of Dementia Matters was produced by Amy Lambright-Murphy and edited by Kaylin Rowerdink. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.